You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Good morning, everybody. This is Melissa Gonzalez, CEO and founder of the Lioness Group and principal at MG2. I'm here this morning with Niall Murphy, who is co-founder and CEO of Everything, an Internet of Things pioneer that manages billions of digital identities for consumer products, making each item smart, interactive, and trackable from the factory floor to consumers' homes to the end of the product's life cycle. Everything is a World Economic Forum technology pioneer, and it originated the technology adopted for GS1 to upgrade the global barcode standard to connect every consumer product to the web. A computer scientist by training, Niall is a technologist, a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor with 25 years of experience in innovation and future thinking. He has built pioneering businesses in internet infrastructure, the mobile internet, and web services in Europe, the U.S. and Africa. Super excited to speak to him today and learn more. Good morning, Niall. Good morning, Melissa. All right. So I gave a, an introduction of you, um, but it'd be great if you can give a high-level introduction of everything. Fantastic. So everything, as your introduction said, uh, provides a digital identity for the world's consumer products on the web. Uh, our purpose really is to provide end-to-end traceability of the 4 trillion consumer products that are made and sold every year in the, in the world. And we do that by providing a, a cloud platform and, uh, as I said, giving an individual digital identity to each individual consumer product item. Great. Well, I can see the importance of that just becoming ever more important um, after the current state of things that we're having globally um, and really people are wanting to understand why, where things came from. So tell us a little bit about what made you start the company. So, you know, you can you can sit down at your computer and you can Google a person and you can obviously Google to find the news, but you can't Google to find a physical thing, uh, which is slightly bizarre if you think about it. Right? There's, there's about 4 trillion consumer products that are made and sold every year in the world. But for the companies that make and sell those, uh, knowing where an item is and who's got it and what they're doing with it is not an easy question to answer. And that's because most of those 4 trillion consumer products uh, just haven't been able to be tracked as they move around the world. And uh, and so we wanted to solve that problem. Um, the consequence of not having visibility on the movement of the world's consumer goods are enormous inefficiencies. So the, you know, the counterfeit economy in consumer goods is worth over $1.3 trillion a year in lost revenue uh, other frauds like parallel trade cost the industry significant percentage points of of, of earnings and, and margin, and uh, and we obviously have big impacts on uh, sustainability because we can't implement a, a circular supply chain at scale if we if we don't know where things are, and um, and so uh, addressing all of that is why we wanted to uh, figure out how to. Uh, get every product in the world connected to the web and, and, and organize that data and the data intelligence that can be derived from that in a much smarter way than, than had been possible. So how exactly are you tracking the data? It seems pretty complex. And you not only track product data, but also consumer engagement, correct? That is correct. So a uh, an individual product item, let's use a real-world example, so a, a Ralph Lauren polo shirt, uh, has a, a label in that 
product. And in, in Ralph Lauren's particular case, that label has a, a QR code on it. Uh, that QR code is unique to that individual shirt. So shirt number one and shirt number two of the, of the same type have, have different uh, identities. And, uh, and that QR code is connecting uh, the, the shirt to its digital identity in the cloud. So just like a human being has a LinkedIn profile, an individual, individual uh, Ralph Lauren uh, polo shirt has its own digital profile in the cloud, what we call an active digital identity. And so when somebody scans and interacts with that uh, uh, QR code, they're actually talking to the digital identity of that shirt, and we're able to capture information from that from that interaction wherever that takes place uh, um, in the journey of the product through the supply chain. But that's the that's the very basics of it. Gotcha. So I'm sure this interest of information isn't lacking, but it uh, seems a bit complex. So how how do you approach onboarding a company? And going about data collection. So the first thing to do is to is to connect the product items to the web, and so typically this starts at the point of production. Uh, so a uh, a factory uh, that's making individual product items will uh, attach uh, some sort of tag or identity to that uh, to that product. That could be a QR code printed onto the product or a um, uh, an NFC chip, for example. Uh, attached to the to the product, um, and so that's done in the in the factory. Now everything is in in the business of providing the the software data management of the product, not uh, providing the physical tag. But the physical tag is obviously important to be able to connect the product to the web. We then create the digital identity for that product item that is linked to that tag that's uh, that's on the product, and uh, and we join uh, other other sources of information. Uh, up with that digital identity. So, for example, the systems that might be being used in a factory that that tell us when an individual item has been produced, or the database that's sitting in a in a distribution warehouse that uh, that tells us when a when a product has been shipped. So we're connecting uh, those sources of information uh, to the product item. But, but that's the basic uh, first step: is to join up the physical production with the digital identity in the cloud. Um, and then uh, we can we can um, uh, attach other digital applications that work with that uh, digital identity that's put onto the product. For example, for uh, for consumer engagement. So there's been a lot of talk for years about the cost of tags, right? Which enables or does not enable a company to be able to make this investment. Um, how do you see that becoming more accessible to brands? There's both the the side of the cost of tags, right? And 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 brands take that to consideration, obviously. But then also the internal IT infrastructure needed to be able to support these sorts of deployments. Do you see that there's um, more accessibility to that, or uh, a deeper um, commitment to being able to make that possible on the brand and retailer side? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks to Moore's Law, the the cost of uh, um, digital printing. Of, uh, of physical sensor technologies has has you know, declined dramatically over the last uh, several years. Uh, it's possible to uh, print at extremely high speeds and extremely low costs uh, unique individual printed identities that can go onto things like a soda can uh, uh, at marginal costs measured in literally thousandths of a of a cent per unit. Um, at the same time. Technologies like uh, uh, printed electronics 
have reduced the cost of a, a sensor tag like a, um, a Bluetooth tag or a, um, an RFID tag uh, being attached to, to a product. So that's become much more practical. Um, uh, standards have also moved forward a great deal. So you mentioned in your introduction, but we, we applied a lot of effort with, um, with GS1, which is the World Standards Organization for, for product coding. Uh, to deploy a standard um, called GS1 Digital Link that provides a uh, coding method and a, a web address format for, uh, for every product in a completely standardized way. Um, and that, the existence of that standard means that um, we can really leverage economies of scale in uh, printing and production and, and uh, manufacturers can take advantage of that standard uh, being uh, free from the risk of um, of investing in a specific proprietary tagging technology, for example, and uh, and finding themselves um, at a cost disadvantage as a as a result of that. So you guys have some pretty exciting clients. Um, can you tell us a little bit about maybe one of your or a handful, whatever you're willing to talk about, of your clients and, and, um, and you know, verticals within the industry, you think adopting it more than others. And then I'll take that one step further. Um, could we dive into maybe a concrete example of a brand where you've seen an impact um, from tracking transparency? Absolutely. So we, uh, we started uh, working heavily in the uh, apparel industry and the, uh, the luxury goods space um, as you can imagine, these are two industries that um, have faced a lot of problems of, of integrity in their supply chains, counterfeit uh, goods and, and diversion and, and the like. Um, and certainly at the premium end of the apparel market and the luxury goods uh, market, uh, yeah, they were naturally early adopter uh, industries that could, that could afford the, the incremental costs when those were material for um for uh, for adding digitization to their to their products um the drivers that we see on uh, on brand owners are really to do with firstly visibility um across their supply chains uh to be able to address things like integrity risks um and uh, and operational efficiencies but also the ability to scale uh connecting directly with their end consumers and this has been where we've seen the broader uh, fmcg uh, market uh starting to to apply digitization uh in the first instance providing basic uh product information to the consumer through through the individual products but starting to expand that into more sophisticated direct-to-consumer uh, services like uh, e-commerce and, and rewards programs and so forth that the consumers can, can engage simply by interacting with the product. So whilst uh, premium goods and, and luxury goods were where the, the, uh, the adoption curve started, it's, it's lateralizing fairly rapidly now across the broader FMCG space. Um, and categories like food uh, where um, there's there's obviously consumer uh, desire for more transparency. Uh, there's also increasing regulatory uh, requirements uh, that that are uh, looking to brands to provide uh, uh, directly measurable accountability on uh, on on how um, the components of food products are being sourced and and the like. That's interesting. I, I'm not going to say that I'm. A pessimist, but I I do wonder sometimes when things are marked organic, what exactly that life cycle's been, and how, are they truly organic? So I, I could see that being a need. 
Yes, it's, uh, it, uh, the lack of transparency has, has if you like, provided uh, an opportunity for a lot of liberal interpretation, I guess. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's not an easy problem, to be fair, on brands uh, to solve because uh, many brand owners uh, don't uh, produce the source materials that are being incorporated into their product and, uh, um, and actually going upstream and, and verifying uh, the exact conditions of production is 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 quite difficult. So uh, to do that as individual brand owners has been has, has been prohibitively expensive. But we're seeing a, a, a broader and broader collective industry investment in that in that transparency, and this will be accelerated, uh, obviously, particularly in the current environment of, of crisis. But um, uh, but but based on uh, a, a very clear trend amongst consumers seeking transparency, I, I, that motivates brands to make those investments. Yeah, I definitely see the um, kind of acceleration of that uh, post this coronavirus world, COVID nineteen world, and I definitely want to dive into that. Um, before we transition to that, I did. So Ralph Lauren's one of your clients, correct? That is correct. And so can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you, you put out a great case study, I believe. Um, how have you seen this impact sales for them? Well, their, uh, their objectives were twofold. One was to have uh, improved understanding of exactly what was going on in their factories and that journey of products from their factories to the, to the retail store. There are a lot of um, opportunities for efficiency just by having a better understanding of uh, of what was happening there. Um, you know, for many apparel companies, um, the, the the best means of communication with their factories has been a telephone and a fax machine. So, having uh, real time analytical uh, visibility of of what's going on in a factory when when production has has started or finished, um, that provides a lot of room for for optimization. And then at the other end, um, as products uh, reach to the consumer, um, the, the, there's obviously an opportunity to interact directly with that consumer. So um, that provides a, a better brand building opportunity. Uh, but to your point about revenue uh, um, acquisition, uh, the product is is essentially a media asset that's owned by the brand. And uh, when that consumer interacts with the, with the product, that provides the brand with the opportunity to provide new offers to that consumer and actually provide a direct e-commerce interface. You know, I could reorder the same shirt if I'm, if I'm uh, enthusiastic about the size and the, and the, and the style that I, that I bought, or uh, I could uh, react to a recommendation that I'm receiving and, and buy another product. And, and that scalability of a direct-to-consumer e-commerce interface is, uh, is, a, is a powerful opportunity and obviously a direct revenue and income driver. Which is great that you're seeing that impact because you know, that's always the challenge with integrating technology is I think brands and retailers trying to figure out how they wrap their head around ROI. Do they focus on cost savings? Do they focus on a lift in sales? Do they, you know, how they wrap their head around what are the right KPIs that they track to make sure that this investment makes sense? How do you guide your clients in that aspect? Well, obviously, the the situation is is different in, in individual organizations. Uh, we've seen uh, a lack of visibility in the supply chain as being a, one of the low hanging fruits uh, in in driving ROI, specifically in in uh, counteracting integrity problems like parallel trade and counterfeit that are that are directly costing uh, headline revenue or income. 
Um, and so there's cost efficiency or revenue reacquisition, if you like, that, that can happen there. And, uh, and then real-time knowledge of where things are um, allows optimization of uh, shipment, for example, um, and transportation. Uh, so there's a lot of cost-saving opportunities in, in supply chain uh, visibility. And, and we've seen that as a big emphasis, uh, particularly in apparel and, uh, and, um, uh, and luxury goods. Uh, for example, we manage traceability for um, Merit Hennessy's uh, wine and spirits products around the world, and that visibility and efficiency within their channel is, uh, has offered uh, um, uh, a lot of benefits in, in cost and operational uh, expediency. But for other brands, this uh, ability to acquire data about the consumer is, um, is, is not just a nice to have, it's a, it's a criticality. Um, uh, consumer brands are often disintermediated from who their end customer actually is. So if they're selling a significant proportion of their products through wholesale channels, they uh, they obviously know which channels they're selling products to, but they don't know who the end consumer is. And uh, um, in a world where brand value um, and indeed the ability to pull the levers of uh, of, uh, of revenue growth is, is a function of um, your, your actual direct consumer relationship, then acquiring uh, data about who the consumer is through your own products on a first party basis uh, is a, an important ROI driver. And that can be accomplished at lower costs uh, by leveraging one's own products than uh, for example, through online media channels. That's great. That makes complete sense. It kind of leads me to one of the next questions I wanted to ask is, you know, how can you use product digitization uh, to create the operational agility needed to operate in an omni-channel world, right? So you talk about different channels, right, when you have only a wholesale lens versus a D2C lens, but how are you using this information to create operational agility or help guiding your clients to do that? Yeah, I think that there's two halves to uh, to that again. So within the the, the supply chain, uh, understanding where things are um, at uh, in terms of state of production or uh, inventory and different different uh, uh, stages within the uh, within the supply chain. If one has that information, uh, one has the ability to redirect uh, inventory to where it's most needed. Um, understand uh, critical dependencies within the supply chain. So we've seen uh, these ridiculous problems whereby inventory is sitting in a retail store, for example, and because that inventory database in the retail store is not accessible uh, to, to um, for example, the web uh, store, uh, the web store might be saying that it's out of stock and meanwhile there's, there's actually inventory available in the physical store, right? <laughs> and uh, And so, uh, joining that information up allows for uh, more mobility of, of assets within within the supply chain. The second part of product product digitization is is this connectivity with the end customer and the fact that the product itself uh, can become an e-commerce interface. Uh, as as every marketer in the world knows, it's a lot easier to sell uh, to an existing customer than it is to acquire a new customer. And by definition. Uh, a consumer who's holding your product is is the most qualified type of, uh, of of customer you could have. So motivating them to interact with the product item, and uh, and providing uh, benefits to them as they interact with that product item, is a is obviously a clear path to a direct relationship and a clear path to motivating a follow on e-commerce transaction. 
Now, that could be occurring post-purchase. That could be occurring uh, um, in, a, in a physical store. And so product digitization provides a, a, an opportunity to blend the, the physical uh, retail uh, environment and the, and the digital uh, uh, or the, the e-commerce uh, retail environment, either at the point of purchase or, or uh, later on in the life cycle of the product. I guess, lastly, the, um, the secondary market is, uh, is a rapidly growing uh, category. Uh, in apparel, but in but in other um, uh, verticals as well. And uh, once a product is digitally identified and interactable, obviously that relationship that the brand has with the end customer doesn't stop after the initial purchase. It can continue as that product maybe goes on to to other owners and and provides an opportunity for the brand to extend their their reach and their value add uh, into that second life of the product. So we're living now in extraordinary times, right? How are you seeing the transition of digitization? I got to practice this word, digitization. Everybody on the podcast listening can make fun of me. Um, how do you see it accelerating, right, on the backs of the world we're living in right now with COVID-19 and, and, and maybe the heightened interest for transparency going forward? Well, one of the things that's clear is that uh, – there have been some really serious resilience challenges within the global supply chain networks uh, for for many brand owners, and um, and this is uh, being caused by a lack of visibility. Uh, so we've seen um, a seizing up, if you like, of the of the supply machine, and uh, a lot of complexity for um, for brand owners in in actually reacting. Uh, to to the the very rapid changes in circumstance that that COVID nineteen is in, is introduced, I think that we can uh, assume that uh, post COVID nineteen uh, we're going to see a different pattern to um, how consumption is is taking place uh, as well, and so there will be new uh, stresses and and demands on on supply chains. And many uh, regulators have already started talking about the the need for um, better disclosure and of of supply chain transparency because of the uh, the problems caused by a lack of resilience in, in the world supply chains. So uh, my first contention would be that um, we will see uh, brands uh, accelerating their investment in in supply chain visibility and and transparency for their own. Uh, for their own business resilience and uh, and integrity purposes, but also um, uh, responding to accountabilities that they they will have within the, within their market environment. I think the second uh, big trend um, that's relevant here is the is the acceleration of um, of e-commerce uh, purchased by consumers. I mean, e-commerce accounted for about eleven percent of um, of retail sales in in the United States uh, last year. And uh, obviously, right now, looking at uh, as Amazon's metrics, it's accounting for a significantly larger percentage. Um, clearly, physical retail will come back, but um, we're, we're, we're likely to see uh, a significant shift in consumer behavior that, that you know, I, I would argue, accelerates that transition to, to e-commerce as a, as, a, as, a, as a means of purchase. And that puts brands under uh, increasing pressure to uh, accelerate their direct-to-consumer models and acquire 
uh, find channels to acquire more information about consumer behavior in an e-commerce environment. So the digitization of their products provides the, the opportunity to do that. It's interesting for sure, because not only are you seeing a greater adoption of e-commerce right now, because for most, that's really the only option and way to buy things. It's interesting to see not just um, an increase in one particular vertical, but across the board, right? Because this is how you're getting your groceries now. This is how you're getting your pharmacy products. This is how you're getting your cleaning goods. I mean, so it's really interesting to see um, once you kind of get somebody over the hump of that comfort level to be able to purchase uh, from the comfort of their own home, do we see that go backwards after stores open? Or, you know, do you see, okay, I I feel comfortable with this now, I'm going to continue to shop online. And then further, I think it kind of closes that generational gap. As you see, you know, you saw a lot of brands targeting Gen Z or millennials and Gen X and baby boomers not getting as much attention when it comes to um, kind of the online world, but now everybody's shopping online. So it'll be interesting to see how brands and retailers approach different segmentations now um, because it's, it's going to be a wider scope. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. If we look at the, the differences in behavior, I think millennial and Gen Z uh, uh, consumers are definitely uh, transparency centric in the sense of wanting to understand the provenance uh, of product items, while Gen X consumers seem to be uh, more convenience led. Not that transparency wasn't a, a high brand selection factor, but but convenience seemed to trumpet. And we, we probably have now a convergence of those two of those two items. But but as you say, across the board, essentially for a, a sustained period, people are being trained on on uh, on radical e-commerce and um, and so it seems logical that that, uh, that whilst they'll revert in part on that behavior, they probably won't revert back to the the kind of consumer patterns that we saw before the crisis. So I think we have a lot ahead of us in seeing the transition happening across brands and retailers, across verticals, across a focus and generation. So Things are going to get kind of interesting for you guys um, internally. Kind of what what predictions are you making, or kind of how are you gearing up everything to be positioned maybe a little bit differently in in in, in working with your clients and what we're calling the new norm going forward. Well, yes, we we anticipate uh, an acceleration in um, in traceability requirements across uh, the, the the FMCG uh, uh, categories. Um, in particular, and uh, a fairly dramatic acceleration in in food traceability um, uh, requirements, and so we we're uh, uh, accelerating some of our uh, product roadmap investments and and um, um, some some elements of technology support to be able to to be able to address those accelerated needs. We're also uh, anticipating. Um, uh, a, a significant increase in in DTC activity, and um, uh, particularly in the requirement for for CRM data acquisition through through existing e-commerce channels. And um, so, it's really about an emphasis of, uh, of of application use case that we've got to ensure that uh, that that we're well ready to support. Rather than the fundamental of what we do, our, our yeah, the, the the everything product cloud and and our digital identity. Core capabilities are are uh, are obviously um, used in all of these different use cases. It's more it's more of a question of uh, of, of what the emphasis of of need is. 
Obviously, certain industries like the apparel industry have taken a, a tremendous hit in the immediate term and and uh, are likely to uh, you know struggle to to uh, to see their volumes recover for a for a sustained period of time. Um, but at the same time, other categories like um, uh, yeah, the, the home goods and the hygiene uh, product verticals and so on have, have seen tremendous increases in volume. And there's an argument that uh, you know, consumer behavior or consumer purchase uh, uh, choices will also be modified. And so uh, we're seeing uh, brands from those categories make uh, much quicker investments now than they, than they perhaps were thinking of um, as we entered this year. <laughs> That makes complete sense. I think we're going to see a greater adoption both on the consumer side uh, of embracing bringing technology into their lives and then consequently brands needing to make those investment decisions a little bit faster um, because they're going to have to be able to be nimble and agile to adapt to the new norm. So this has been a really great conversation. I think that everything is in a really interesting place and what you're doing to help really help brands and retailers digitize product lines and 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 see that um, transparency help them figure out their businesses. Before we go, since we can't travel um, in the current world, hopefully for people who are listening to this later on, uh, that won't be the case. But I would like to ask you, uh, if I were to go to Switzerland today um, and, and we were living in a normal life, what would be the three things I must do? Well, the three things you must do in Switzerland are, are uh, I'll go for a walk in the mountains. Uh, they're absolutely stunning. Uh, you need to um, find a little jeet cafe and have a, a fondue when you're uh, when you're up the mountain, and uh, and then you need to have a, a swim in the in, in one of the lakes. Um, yeah, but uh, those are the three things that certainly are on top of my list. <laughs> That sounds amazing. It's been some time since I've been in Switzerland. I, I spent some time in Interlaken. So I feel like I've been successful because I did climb a mountain. I, I did go to the top and have a fondue. I didn't swim in the lake, but I did go whitewater rafting. So uh, I think I had a complete trip. Excellent. It sounds like it. Well, it was great speaking to you. Um, and I, I look forward to learning more as, as the world continues to evolve and, and see how everything is helping brands find their way um, in the new norm. Thank you, Melissa. You'd be safe. Take care. It was great having you on Retail Refine, presented by MarketScale. I'm your host, Melissa Gonzalez.